Welcome back to Radicalize Me, the show that is increasingly convincing me that we need a revolutionary overthrow of the capitalist system in order for the human race to survive. So, happy Tuesday, I guess. I'm recording this Monday, September 14th, 2020, and will go out Tuesday, September 15th. Uh, and this past Friday was the 19th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks in 2001. I just can't believe I was in seventh grade 19 years ago. Uh, I don't know if I've said my age on the show, but I'm sure you can guess now. That was a scary day for me, like it was for many. Uh, my family actually lived in Queens for the first several years of my life, but we had moved out four years earlier to a town in southwestern Connecticut. So pretty close to New York City, but far enough away for comfort. That's why people move to the suburbs, I guess. But uh, my dad kept his job in Manhattan when we moved, so he was commuting in every day. Uh, and his subway stop was like four blocks from the World Trade Center. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't rem remember all the details of the day. I was pretty young. Um, I had ADD. Um, it had maybe just started being medicated, and I probably blocked some of it out. But knowing my dad, I'm pretty sure the first plane hit, and he was like, bye, and uh, booked it, because I don't remember him getting stuck there or anything. Um, but as for how my day went, I think, again, I was 12 years old and had some mental health issues where I wasn't fully grasping what was happening, but... It was still a wild ride. Uh, I came out of m maybe my first or second class of the day in middle school, and my best friend Dan stopped me in the hallway and said someone had come to his class, his you know previous class, to explain what was happening and showed them pictures. Other than that, I only have like four main memories from that day. Uh, my next class was Spanish, and the phrase of the day was probably no me gusta. Um, I think my teacher never showed up for class, actually, because uh, all I remember is this girl in my class getting up and badly explaining the attacks with a chalkboard drawing, which really set the stage for the next 20 years of American politics. Next thing that comes to mind is I was sitting in a classroom where they had uh, corralled a bunch of my grade, and they stuck a gym teacher in there with us while I guess the rest of the faculty were freaking the fuck out and trying to get any information at one point the gym teacher was watching the tv which was turned away from us um with his mouth agape we were like something went down uh i i assume this was when the towers were falling or when the pentagon got hit you know um one of the the bombshell moments of the day uh but yeah, my my friend I was sitting with asked him what was going on, and he wouldn't show us. I'm pretty sure they got the buses to come take us home early, and then I remember walking home from the bus stop and a little bit of watching TV later that night. And then nothing ever really got better in this country from that point on. Yeah, I could talk all day about the horrors of the Bush administration, and at some point I will. But I want to pull up this particular article by Cindy Rodriguez from the Denver Post published on the fifth anniversary of 9-11 in 2006. Title is Bush Ties to Bin Laden Haunt Grim Anniversary. Side note, this is published in the lifestyle section for some reason of the Denver Post. First thing I want to say is I'm not about to, and she's not about to, peddle some nonsense conspiracy theories about jet fuel and missiles and shit. Um, the government and the ruling class lie to us 
but it's not nearly as organized as some people think. They're, they're not, there's not, they're not so good at it that they're like completely fabricating events and, and staging these things so that like, you know, most of us believe the wrong thing. Like it's, it's not, it's not really like that. The article is just about the very real business ties between the Bush and bin Laden families and some suspicious shit that doesn't add up. Okay. So she writes. In 1978, Bush, the George W. Bush, and Osama bin Laden's brother, Salem bin Laden, founded Arbusto Energy, an oil company based in Texas. Several bin Laden family members invested millions in the Carlisle Group, a private global equity firm based in Washington, D.C. End quote, side note. Is, is there anything more full of shit than private equity? Can anyone tell me what the fuck private equity does? Send me an email. Radicalizeme at gmail.com if you can explain private equity in plain English in one or two sentences. Several bin Laden family members invested millions in the Carlisle Group, a private global equity firm based in Washington, D.C. The company's senior advisor was Bush's father, former President George H.W. Bush. After news of the Bin Laden-Bush connection became public, the elder Bush stepped down from Carlisle. Interestingly, on September 11, 2001, members of the Carlisle Group, including Bush Sr. and his former Secretary of State James Baker, were meeting at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Washington, D.C., along with Shafiq Bin Laden, another one of Osama Bin Laden's brothers. While all flights were halted following the terrorist attacks, there was one exception made. The White House authorized planes to pick up 140 Saudi nationals, including 24 members of the bin Laden family living in various cities in the U.S. to bring them back to Saudi Arabia, where they would be safe. They were never interrogated. Five years later, and we're still asking questions. We may have lost our innocence, but we're also losing, thankfully, our ignorance. Um, yeah, Saudi Arabia did 9-11. So, okay, I know I said I wasn't going to get in, like, conspiracy. It's, this is not a th- This is true. Saudi Arabia did 9-11. I want you to go look that up today. But, uh, yeah, I think, you know, some of this, the, the oil company, I think, is pretty common knowledge. This Carlisle Group shit, I don't, you know, I don't remember hearing a lot about that. Um, oddly, I don't think that Cindy is uh, working for the Denver Post any longer, and I can't find her on the internet. Uh, I, I found other Sydney Rodriguez's who are journalists, um, but I'm not sure if they're the same ones. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to track her down. <laughs> I'm going to see if I can get her on the show. If you know anything about Cindy Rodriguez, who was writing for the Denver Post in 2006. Um, if you are Cindy, hit me up. What's really infuriating about 9-11, the wars, Bush's presidency, Obama, Trump, and where we are now, is that it's like this crazy thing happened on 9-11, and we're told it's important and somber, but really nothing fucking matters. We're told we went to war because people died, and we have to take out Saddam Hussein because he gassed his own people. But then it didn't fucking matter because... We were torturing and killing even more people, and our police gasped our people all the time. 
Plus, there's the obvious point that, you know, plenty of memes and stuff have pointed this out, that 200,000 people have died from coronavirus. And we've done pretty much nothing. So, I don't think it was about that. <laughs> we were told that this Republican administration was wrong to start these wars, right? So we elected Obama. But it didn't fucking matter because he didn't prosecute them, didn't end the wars, and started a few more. It doesn't matter that Bush was a war criminal because now he's on the fucking Allen show and Biden gives him a medal for being a special boy. This is why I just don't believe the lie anymore. We need to tear this system down. But in the meantime, my guest this week is Gregory Joseph, a comedian and activist currently based in New Orleans. He is the communications director at the National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty and a leading advocate for the Save Our Stages Act, which would keep music and comedy venues from having to close permanently because of the hit they've taken from the shutdowns. Uh, you may have seen something recently where Chuck Schumer was on stage with Jerry Seinfeld at the, the Gotham Comedy Club in New York. Uh, and th That's what that was about. Chuck's not making a, a late stage career move. You can learn more and help out at SaveOurStages.com. Forgive me for the audio in the interview. Gregory was in public using either a phone or computer mic, so he's got that like phone voice thing, but you'll be able to understand him just fine. Now let's get to Gregory Joseph. I'll see you on the other side. Nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. I don't know when we got connected on Facebook, but that's that's how it goes with a lot of comedians I know, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I don't, don't remember either, but uh, I check out your podcast, man. It's, uh, it's good stuff. Good stuff you oh, thanks. Yeah, it's... Uh, I wasn't sure what else to do, so I'm <laughs> trying to, you know, get the word out everybody to the has, right people. Everybody has their role, man. Yeah. Um, cool. So is uh, so it's Gregory Joseph, and do you Gregory go? Joseph. You go by Greg, or uh, normally Gregory. Yeah. Okay. Gregory. Cool. Um, and you are the communications director for. Uh, the National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. Yes. Awesome. Um, so what, I guess to start, what do you do in your role there? Uh, well, you know, I also do a lot of programming for the organization. So um, right now we are involved in a lobby fight to make sure the federal death penalty is no longer uh, exercised. We just got two new execution dates. Uh earlier this week, so we're still fighting against that. So we're mobilizing people to uh, contact their United States senators and representatives in Washington, and also for the White House, uh, voicing their opposition. Um, so we run those campaigns. Um, obviously, any news that is related to the death penalty, um, you know, a few uh, Boston, uh, the Boston Globe put out a very positive op-ed um, calling for opposition to the death penalty um, last Sunday. Um, I also am the official spokesperson for the organization. So um, anytime that there is a quote needed, like you just had the reverse um, with the Boston bomber. Yeah. Um, so I spent a lot of hours on the phone talking to various supporters across the country about our position. Yeah. Um, and then we do uh, programming. We do various webinars that explore 
various aspects of the death penalty. Um, we are involved in a uh, documentary film called In the Execution of Shadow, which before the um, pandemic, we had organized various screenings across the country at people's houses and living rooms and coffee shops, um, and then facilitated discussions on the death penalty as well. So we have, uh, there's a lot of moving parts, and uh, yeah. there's, and it's a very challenging job, a very challenging issue to work on. Um, not a lot of good news. Um, but um, we've making tremendous progress in the last couple of years. So yeah. Happy about that. Well, so that federal case you were talking about, that's a pretty big deal, right? Because that was going to be the first execution, first federal execution in 17 years. Is that right? And in, in about 12 years. Yeah. 12 years. Okay. You know, uh, you know, the president of the United States and the attorney general are the last two people who should be exercising anything called justice. But yeah. here they are restarting the death penalty. And it was riddled with problems from the beginning. I mean, they haven't used the federal death penalty in 12 years. And it was for a reason, um, because it was broken and because it wasn't fair and because it wasn't being applied um, in, a, in a level of fairness. Right. And the attorney general and the president just basically said, well, we don't care about any of that. We got we got people to kill. Yeah. And um, they they kind of moved it. You know, they you know, there's um, with the federal death penalty, you're supposed to follow the same execution protocol as the state where the crime was committed. Um, okay. And every state had a three drug protocol. But we don't have three drug protocols anymore because the drugs aren't available. So the federal government's like, well, screw that. We're just going to kill them with one drug, um, which is absolutely insane to think about. And actually, one of the states where the crime committed doesn't even have a death penalty anymore. So we were like, what the hell is going on here? So this is, um, um, sorry, just to clarify, you're talking about like the lethal injection? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, about 10 years ago, um, European drug makers who make these the two of the drugs that are yeah. used in lethal injection. Um, there's one to paralyze you, and then there's one to stop your heart, and there's a painkiller, you know. But it's a three-drug protocol. Um, but the European drug makers and the European Union, you know, you can't be a member of the European Union and support the death penalty. The death penalty wow. is, 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 is a beast in, in Europe. And they were pissed off that, you know, crazy Americans were using their drugs to kill people. So they stopped. They stopped selling them to them. And so everybody ran out of drugs. And that's why there was a moratorium across the country, because they couldn't find drugs. And so everybody had to rewrite their protocol. You know, and try to say we can do this with one drug, and they're like, oh, I don't know if you can. I mean, <laughs> you know, you're kind of forgetting the whole, you know, painkiller part. It's really important. Oh, it's not that. Big. So that's that was the reason why the, the moratorium was. Yeah. And so states have now um, gone to one drug. You know, one drug is manufactured here in the U.S., and they're now trying to kill people with one drug, and um, it's insane. Yeah. So what, is it a uh, more unpleasant process then for like the uh, the, the well, one being the executed? Well, the process is not pleasant. In well, any, I'm sure. In I'm sure, part. but well, the idea was that you're supposed to be kind of unconscious, right? That they would inject you with three drugs, one being a painkiller that you just wouldn't feel. You wouldn't feel. I mean, because you know. I don't I think it's sodium 
something. I, I don't really remember the names of the drugs. I try not to think about it. So one of them is, is painful, you know, because it's basically frying your inside. So they need to numb you before yeah. they do that. And the numbing drug was the one that the, the, they weren't able to get. Um, okay. So it's, it's the, the process is never, we've seen a few box executions with lethal injection because, you know, they don't have doctors uh, administering the IVs because doctors don't do that. Um, they won't kill people. They yeah. do no harm is kind of what right. they, they teach you. Which should be um, an indicator. And execution yeah. is pretty harmful. Right. <laughs> um, so they have whatever retired paramedic or whoever. And, you know, sometimes they can't find the vein. Sometimes uh, they can't get the IV incorrect. Um, the last person they executed was on the gurney for eight hours, strapped down, waiting for the court to decide whether or not they were going to go forward the execution. Now, if that's wow. not a level of cruel and unusual punishment, I don't know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So 12 years ago, that was that was under Bush then, right? Yeah, Bush's the moratorium was under Bush. And then Obama didn't carry out any. Yeah. And then, of course, this idiot decided <laughs> he was going to yeah. you know, start it. Yeah. Yeah, I always say the motto of the Trump administration should be, if it sucks, we're doing it. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, it but, could be more like, it can't suck enough for us not to do it. <laughs> right. Yeah, so was your organization around back then? Yeah, actually, we're the oldest um, in the country. We started in 1976 when wow. the federal government legalized execution for the first time. So we've been around since 1976. Um, so yeah, we've been, we're, uh, we're the oldest organization solely dedicated to abolishing the death penalty in, in, in America. Wow. Okay. Um, so when did you come on board? Oh, I started in 76. I started as a oh, five-year-old. Really? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I, I, um, I, I, I started with NCADP for the first time in 2007 okay. and I ran their state policy and their campaigns. Um, and then I moved to various board positions within the death penalty movement um, and served in a consultant role to various death penalty campaigns. And But I came back into the fold full-time again in the summer of 2017. Okay. Cool. Um, so... <laughs> and all did... we've done is, you know, abolish the death penalty in Colorado and New Hampshire since I've been back in Washington. Now we've been busy, guys. You know. All right. <laughs> so they just needed you back. Um, <laughs> that's that's great, though. Um, did you? So did you start doing comedy uh, before or after you got involved in this? <laughs> um, um, well, I started comedy um, very late in my life. I started comedy eight years ago. I was in my early forties back then. Um, I had spent 20 years as a political consultant in nonprofit organizations. You know, I've worked on Capitol Hill. I've worked on over a dozen political campaigns. Um, and I did that pretty consistently up until 2012 when I had this crazy idea that I wanted to be a comedian. <laughs> um, and so I've been pursuing full-time comedy up until about 2017 when I realized that there's no such thing as a full-time comedian. <laughs> Um, yeah, especially now. <laughs> uh, and so I came back to the movement. But yeah, um, I have 
been in the movement as a comic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I spoke, it, it, I, I spoke uh, we do a fast and visual outside of the uh, Supreme Court every year um, for the death penalty. And I spoke um, two years ago. Um, and it was like, I literally just did like a 20 minute set, you know, like it yeah, was like yeah. weaving in jokes um, and death penalty facts and jokes. And I had yeah. written the death penalty joke when I first started, um, like, uh-huh. like maybe the first month of my, of my joke telling, I, I wrote a, a long ass death penalty joke, um, which I still love, but I still, <laughs> um, so, fun, you know, the hard, it's not the hard of a subject to make, to make fun about. Yeah. So when you spoke to the Supreme Court, were you talking to like the justices or? No, this... no, we were outside. So we're talking to various activists. And, okay. You know, um, we had a family of one, a person on death row from Texas. He was, their family was there, but it's mainly like activists and people like me, you know, it, the, the Supreme Court justices um, don't come out and listen. They might see us through the windows, but they're, okay. uh, they're not. <laughs> We're not talking to them. NCADP yeah. does provide grant funding for lawyers who do capital cases. So um, anytime that there is a capital case or emergency declaration, um, that funding, some of it is provided by by organizations like that. Awesome. Yeah, I would. <laughs> I would have loved to know which justices laughed and which didn't. <laughs> but uh... well. I can tell you, so to my ear, man. She's uh, she's got a good sense of humor. Yeah. Um, she's uh, she's one of the more down to earth, realistic ones. And so is Elena Kagan. Um. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Ginsburg. I mean, Ginsburg. You know, is probably one of the best comedians after. Uh, yeah, she would have to be at the, at her age. Um. Yeah. So. Oh, what was I? Well, how, so how how would people get involved in this if they were uh, uh, interested? Like, what was your first step? Um, well, how would they get? Well, I mean, I always say what kind of level of involvement do they want to get? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's so many facets of this, you know. They, we, you know, we need retired lawyers to, you know, file briefs and, you know, to, to, to help people. We need, you know, we need educators and, and teachers to to give the people on death row some peace of mind and give them a reason to wake up in the morning. Uh, you know, we need people to write pen. We need people to write be pen pals with in death row prisoners. You know, and and write them. Um, and, you know, we need people to call their senators and call their Congress people to call their governors. Um, you know, every time that Texas has an execution, we alert our members to call the governor of Texas and say stop the execution, email them, whatever. Um, so there, you know, there, there are definite ways to get involved. I would tell anyone, uh, if you want to get involved, find out what you can do and then you can just do it. You know, yeah. if you want to write a lot, if you want to be a pen pal through death row, you know, inmate, go to uh, the death row pen pal website, sign up and boom. Um, you want to deliver books to death row. If you're an old librarian or you got a bunch of books, you know, 
uh, if you're a lawyer and you can help out and provide some free legal advice to the legal teams that are working to save these people's lives. Um, you know, there's, there's a million and one ways to get involved and they're not all, you know, not all rolling up your sleeves. And of course, you can also just give us 50 bucks a month so we can continue to fund lawyers and continue to run programming that um, runs narratives that the death penalty is wrong. You know, for the last 10 years, every October, um, Gallup does a poll on the death penalty. And for yeah. the last 10 years, more and more people are coming back and saying they oppose the death penalty. Last year, we were at 54%. More than half the American people oppose the death penalty now. And that's been going up a point every year. Wow. Um, you know, there are 258 people who've been exonerated from death row. People who are absolutely innocent, who were scheduled to die. Yeah. And by the grace of whoever you want to pray to, they was found out they were innocent. Um, 258. You know, I think all of these, you know, these CSIs and all of this stuff, people realize that there are people who are on death row because of eyewitness testimony. No physical evidence, no DNA, no wow. blood. It's just like somebody said, I saw that person do it. And yeah. that's never reliable. And it's always the person who says they saw someone do it. That's the person who did it. <laughs> wow. Uh, so is that, um, does your group do any like investigative work into that stuff to sort of exonerate or is that what? We take more of a macro approach to the issue. Okay. Uh, we do not get involved in individual clemency cases. Um, even though they're like, they're fun and they're sexy and a lot of people get involved because there's injustice to be wrong. Like you saw Kim Kardashian and, and Kanye with the president exonerating someone who was innocent. And, you know, those are a lot of people who run those campaigns, but we are more of a national organization talking about the issue from a legislative and a legal perspective. Right. Um, it's wrong. Even if you're not innocent, it's wrong to be sentenced to death. Yeah. You know, so we don't have that kind of, oh, you know, the Innocence Project is another anti-death penalty organization, but they only get involved with DNA. Okay. We don't believe anyone should be executed. Right. You know, when I, I remember when I was when I first started with the organization, I had to write a statement because they had caught Saddam Hussein and they were going to execute him, and we were going to have to be the one to say, eh, you know, let's just put him in jail for the rest of his life. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I forget how old. What, what was that? Two thousand five, two thousand six. Like, I was like. Um, it was like 2006-7. Yeah. yeah, so I was uh, 17 or 18, and I, I remember seeing, like, the leaked cell phone footage of his execution, and yeah. I, I severely re- regretted watching that. I guess in some part of my mind, you know, I wasn't, like, a Republican or in favor of the war, but I was like, eh, this guy should die, right? And I really, like, it felt really gross, and uh, that's probably one of the first times that I started thinking along these lines. Yeah, that wasn't the best. That wasn't the best of us yeah. as, a, as, a, as a people. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what is sort of, I'm sure like the annoying question you get all the time is like, well, what about rapists? What about serial killers? What are, so like? Oh, no, what no. is sort of the uh, the response to that? Well, I'm 
So I'm gonna I'm gonna say something, and if it comes out harsh, I apologize. But if you want to rape, if you want the death penalty for rape, then there are gonna be a lot more people dead. Yeah. All right. You know, I remember when they tried to extend the death penalty to child molesters, um, and our only argument was like, okay, you know, they're just gonna kill the kids. Right. You know. The reason that you know that someone was molested is because they're alive to tell you the story. But if they're going to get the death sentence, then they're just going to kill the kid. And that's not going to help anybody. You're not going to solve child molestation by imposing the death sentence. On yeah. Um, these are, those are horrible crimes. Rape, murder, they're horrible crimes. And nobody should ever have to experience the trauma that they bring. Um, but the death penalty is not going to make rapists go away. No. It's not going to deter people from rape, just like it doesn't deter people from murder. Um, and when you talk about taking somebody's life, that's revenge. Yeah. It's not justice. Um, justice is not taking somebody's life. That's just revenge. And we as people are better than that. Now, we're not saying that these people should go free. We're not saying that this is not a crime and it's not horrible. And we're not saying they shouldn't pay. But who are you to take somebody's life? I I vote all the time. And I never vote to give the power for someone to decide whether or not they live or die. There's just so many problems with the death penalty that when people say, well, they should have the death penalty for this and death penalty that. That's only for cop killers. Like, I mean, like, it, it doesn't, it's not going to solve any, it's not going to solve the issue of murder by imposing a death sentence. Yeah. And we're better than that. I mean, we should be better than that as people. The Europeans don't execute people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, am I, are we to believe that there's nothing but gang rape and, and murder in Europe? I mean, <laughs> no, I, I think, think there's, so. I think there's I mean, lo- probably less than here. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's kind of like our gun culture. I mean, to me, that's kind of like, you know, only thing that prevents uh, you from being killed with a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Like, no, that's not how it works. Like, the gun is the problem. It doesn't matter who the good or bad. And it's like the death penalty, it's not going to solve violence against women. Right. It's not the magic elixir that we've been looking for. Yeah. Right. Yeah, which is why I, I can definitely see this like playing into the uh, sort of uh, defund police and like abolish prison movement. I don't know if that's something that your organization takes any sort of stance on, but I, I can see it like being along the same lines of thought. Well, in, when we talk about the criminal justice reform movement that's going on, whether it's prisons or bail or, you know, yeah. the whole gamut, um, the death penalty fits right into that. Because when people are talking about reforming uh, criminal justice system, even when they're talking about defunding the police, there's always an element of race involved. Why do we want to end mass incarceration? Because brown and black people are incarcerated at rates that are tremendously much higher than a proportion of the population. The death penalty is the same way. It's not like you got a whole bunch of white folks on death row. You got black people and you got brown people and you got them more uh, to their, uh, their 
more relevant to their percentage of the population on death row. So um, it's very much an issue. The criminal justice reform movement um, is the death penalty. There's racial bias up and down the death penalty. I mean, yeah. it's not. It's never. It's not good to be stopped driving while black. It's right. Never a good thing. But we also execute while black. In this country. Yeah. And that's a little bit harder than a speeding ticket. You know. I mean, and if we look at who gets death penalty, a black person. If I kill you, Jim, like if I if I walked over and just and 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 killed you. Um, I would. Pro- I'm five times more likely to get death sentence. If you if kill me, other, yeah. five times less likely to get death sentence. Right. And that uh, kind of goes on on racial grounds. It's just not applied fairly. Yeah. You know. Right. Because you and, you, you, and, and the, the fairness comes down on racial and also on economic levels as well. I mean, if you're poor and white, you're probably going to get you get death penalty. Yeah. Yeah. It's it it's because you're still just talking about something that's going to be applied by people who have all sorts of biases and a system that has all sorts of biases. I mean, um, it's the same jury um, that's made up of, you know, uh, you know, and you look at, you know, you look at some of these places where people are executed in these rural towns in Texas, where there might be a minority population of 1% and you get a jury that doesn't look like you. And of course, you know, the big black guy killed the white woman. Well, he's got to be killed. No, it was actually her husband, <laughs> yeah. the white cop. Right. You know, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it is, it's horrible. You know, um, there's so much racial bias weaved in our criminal justice system. Um, and the death penalty, the high, the stakes are as high as any. And it's, it's, it's riddled with racial bias. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think this is another, this is another way that this, uh, overlaps with, um, other sort of thinking about like systemic issues where we just give people too much power when they're in power. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, when we talk about like bipartisanship or the left and right working together in this country, all, a lot of time, I think it's bullshit and it's just the right. But, (laughs) um, when we talk about like things we can converge on, I think there are a lot of conservatives and a lot of liberals and a lot of leftists who would agree like, yeah, there's too much power given to to too few people. And it's not like the Supreme Court or Congress or the president are like monks that like, you know, meditated all of their biases away over decades before they came into. It's just insane to give people you know, that much power. You're right about that. And it's it's um, there's a there's a, there's a Netflix show. Or no, it's not Netflix. But there's a show about a gentleman in Texas who was wrongly convicted of, of of endangering a child and child molestation. He's like a high school kid. Um, and the whole reason for the show is just to see exactly what a district attorney and police can do when they have one singular focus. And they wanted to prove this person was guilty. And they had no evidence. <laughs> But they were able to do it, and it was it was a horrible job by the law enforcement, horrible job by the district attorney. But you know, when they say a district attorney can indict a ham sandwich, <laughs> it's true. Now, I've district attorneys. I never give them the power to take somebody's life. You know, 
You can right. ruin a lot of people's lives by the things that you do on a normal basis, but I never give them. And, and, and again, it's just a decision. It's not like, you know, it's not like, oh, if you kill someone, you get death penalty. It's like, oh, well, can, can, is that, I mean, like, you know, it, 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 it's so arbitrary. And you take the low-hanging fruit. So when you have the black person who's con- who's convicted of killing the poor white girl, yeah, you can get that black person con- sentenced to death. But the wealthy husband, you know, who, you know, hired someone to kill their wife and has got means and got a lawyer, you might not be able to get that death sentence. And so you just send them to life in prison. But it's still the same crime, you know. Yeah. Um, but yes, there's too much power in district attorneys when it comes to life and death and, and jail and, and all over. That's when you see people like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia who were looking mm-hmm. and saying, you know what, we got to change the way that we prosecute and the, and the way that we adjudicate and the way that we punish. Um, and maybe we should stop by punishing. <laughs> maybe that's the first thing we do. It's like maybe everyone doesn't deserve to go to jail. Yeah. You know, it's just because you got a couple joints in your pocket doesn't mean you're a fucking menace to society. If that was the case, I'd be in jail right now. Oh, <laughs> nobody say that. I'm working. I am not. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, and I I like this. Um, uh, like you said, your organization takes a, a moral approach to this, to like like making a moral argument for it, which I think is very important because... Uh, we are a society that is pretty singularly focused on like law and order and you know what the law says and and all of that and it's like well you know for moral reasons we've had to change the laws a number of times like all over the world so it, it's it's uh i think it's a very important argument to make well you know here's this is how how twisted the republican philosophy comes with, with regards to the death penalty. So I believe it was last year, Alabama, um, which is a Republican state with a Republican governor, passed a bill that would basically outlaw abortion. Right. You know, it was their abortion bill is basically like if you're, they basically recognize the fetus um, as a child. Yeah. Um, and the governor, who's a uh, Republican woman, Kay Ivey, stood on stage and said, "This let this be known that Arkansas, uh, Alabama is a pro-life state. And we are saying right now that we are a pro-life state. And then, honest to God, the next day, she signed two execution warrants. I guess you're not yeah. pro-life when it comes to killing people, just killing non-people. And I remember talking to a few uh, uh, on a few podcasts about the hypocrisy between the pro-life movement. How can you be pro-life and pro-death penalty? Yeah. And I and I, I don't understand it. I don't get it. But I guess people believe that they they give you this. Well, you had your chance to to do something, or you're not an innocent child. And it's like no <laughs> life or death. There's no there's no gray area. Yeah. Either you're for life or you're against life, but don't, you know, don't don't split hairs. Yeah, um, yeah. Have you have you ever heard the uh, George Carlin uh, pro life abortion bit? That's yeah. that's one of my favorites. <laughs> I mean, and right, and that's when I go back to say, like, you know, the death penalty is not the hardest thing to make jokes about because the hypocrisy is just dripping everywhere. And if you look at it from that perspective, you 
you can find how how funny, how much humor you can find in, in, in the hypocrisy. Yeah. Hey, I, can I talk to you about something else that's non-death penalty related? Yeah, sure. Or is this all? Is this all about the death penalty? No, no. Whatever, whatever you got. Sorry about that. So I'm here um, at the world famous Howlin' Wolf in New Orleans, Louisiana. Okay. It's one of the uh, the oldest and and most famous live music venues. Um, I'm living here in New Orleans, and obviously, if you know anything about New Orleans, you know how much music is part of the culture and mm. part of the history and really everything with the city. Of course, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Um, we have, you know, limits on capacity indoors. And so nobody's really rushing back to the stage to perform music. But these independent music venues are, are still open and they're still trying to survive um, without anyone knowing when we're going to be able to put on a show again. And as our leaders in Washington, D.C. are talking about stimulus, there's a bill that's been introduced, and you're talking about bipartisan. This is actually a bipartisan bill with a Democrat and a Republican, John Cornyn from Texas and Amy Klobuchar um, mm. from Minnesota, which is about as strange of a pairing as you could possibly. It reminds me of the song that Pink and Chris Stapleton did together. It's like <laughs> it's just two weird people, but they came together. Um, and the bill is called Save Our Stages. It's provide actual direct money to independent venue, music venue owners. Um, so we can in turn use that money to trickle down to the musicians and the bartenders and the transportation people. I mean, you know, we get 200 people here in a club to hear a brass band. And then at the end of the show, they've been spending money on food, drink. And then, you know, there's a million Ubers waiting to take them. The economic trickle down of right. live music spreads throughout the city. So we're really hoping that the members of the United States Senate and the House of Representatives put this bill into their next round of stimulus relief because small, and this is small independent. We're not trying to bail out, you know, James Dolan and Radio City Music Hall. You know, this mm -hmm. is small independent. And so we're trying to we're trying to uh, get a few people. I've, I've just got a note from a guy. He talked to Ivan Neville, and uh, Ivan Neville is going to come do. Uh, he, is he going to do this podcast right now with me? Oh no, he's going to do MSNBC. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we've been trying to get some musicians on television and radio to talk about the importance of the bill, um, oh. because you know, without live music, there is no no new one. And I just like in Boston and where you are in New yeah. York, I mean, I can't imagine. So we need to protect our independent music venues and protect our musicians. So save our stages, hashtag save our stages. Yeah. Go to our website and, and check it out. That's great. Oh, so it's, it's, uh, on, it's on your website. No, no, no. Uh, we, we have a separate, Oh, it's a separate. Okay. Org. Yeah. Awesome. Um, um I should, I, maybe, um, no, I don't think I can link it on NCADP. <laughs> so, I mean, outside of NCADP, I do consulting for other political issues and nonprofits yeah. and stuff like that. Um, and so it's been an honor to kind of work with, with, with some of the people down here on this bill because I love music. And so I get to, I mean, dude, I get to talk to Ivan Neville. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. 
Um, so what, uh, sorry if I missed this. What, so what was your role in, uh, in getting the bill to Congress? Um, well, my role for this is really on a communications level. It's really trying to find a way to get people to communicate the importance of this bill. So yeah. trying to get various musicians and other people connected to the music industry, booked on television and radio. Um, you know, I've, I've knocked on the door of some, some friends that I've been on their podcasts and on their serious XM shows who agreed to, uh, to interview some people and, Basically, see my Rolodex and trying to get people on MSNBC. I even called some Fox News producers for crying out loud. That's wow. how desperate I am. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's really just trying to what we like to say in the business, kind of like bring more eyes onto the issue and kind of yeah. raise the temperature. Um, so if these senators are going back home for the weekend and turning on Fox or turning on MSNBC or listening to the radio, they hear it and they know that they're people, um, and they know these people who are talking whether it's the Grammy Award winners or the, the guy who founded Jazz Fest, you know, um, talking about the economic impact. Um, so it's really just trying to raise awareness um, yeah. because people are walking around as if, like, yeah, that, that music venue is going to be okay. It won't be open for a year, but I'm sure they've got tons of money saved up. Right. That's not how it works. Yeah. So you're, like, the on-the-ground advocate. Um I'm one that. of a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and this is, uh, the Howling Wolf is, a, is, is, is what I like to call my local bar. And they've been very much engaged in this fight. And, you know, not to sound like, you know, Lee Neeson, but I have a particular set of skills that would be useful for them. And I'm doing what I can do for them. You know, this is all pro bono. I'm not getting paid for this, but... This is obviously something that's important to us. There is a comedian aspect to Save Our Stages because it is yeah. not just independent music venues, but independent stages. So, um, you know, it, not to say like it's going to bail out, you know, comedy clubs, but I mean, if we're saving a stage for music, we're saving a stage for something. Yeah. Um, and the idea is to save the stages. Um, uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great because I think. Uh... Hashtag Save Our Stages. <laughs> Yeah, I'll make sure to put put that uh, info in the description and everything. Um, but yeah, it, it's great because I, I know I feel a lot of the time and I think that, you know, why I do this show is that a lot of people probably feel this way, that uh, they don't know what to do. And they feel like if they're not like in the streets fighting the police in Portland, then, <laughs> then they're not helping. So um, it's it's great to, to uh, hear about all these different ways. Uh, no, I, I'm, I'm not. I, I went to some of the protests um, when they first, you know, came out. I'm not, um, I'm not a, I'm not a marcher. I'm not an activist like that. You know, I, I fight, and I, and there are obviously issues that I care about. But I think there are people, you know, people have their role in their lane, and they do what they do. Like I'm not a guy who's going to make a sign and go stomp and, and you know, lead a chant. Um, but I understand the importance of that, but we've come to the point in some issues right now where people are just dying to do something. Yeah. Um, and thankfully now in this world that we live in, getting engaged and getting active is not hard at all. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, you can start a fucking comedians against the death penalty Facebook group. 
You know, I mean, and that's doing something. Right. You know, and you can share news and information, and you can you you can find like-minded people. Um, the levels of engagement are so not to say easy, but they are. You know, right. you don't have to. I mean, like back in the 25 years ago, we'd have to do, knock on people's door and do like house parties. Now I can do a change.org petition and get you know 30,000 signatures within an hour and not have to leave and not have to leave the bar. Yeah. <laughs> so um so when did you move to New Orleans? I came to New Orleans it's it's been a, it'll be a year in September. Um it feels like a few years but it would be a year oh, yeah. in September. <laughs> um and uh you know, I moved from New York. I, I can't say that I was envious of what New York went through during the pandemic. No. Um, I did feel weird not being home when yeah. my city was hurting. Um, but we weren't, it wasn't a walk in the park down here either. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, have you, uh, have you done stand up down there or? Yeah. Um, well, I've been doing stand up down here, before, you know, for, years now um but yeah i'm right here at the howland wolf there are actually two comedy shows nice uh, on tuesday and thursday night one is called comedy beast um and one is called comedy gumbo um I've, uh, they're both free shows um but i've never seen free shows in new york that get such an audience you know because we are technically in a, in a tourist area of new orleans yeah. and so you know even on a tuesday night you know the room will be filled and um, they're very liberal with the time. Um, I guess they think I'm a good comic because I work <laughs> in New York. So they, you know, they give they give me uh, a good long set. Like I don't really need 20 minutes, but I mean I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's you know there's there are a lot of good comedians down here um, who you knew like maybe if the world wasn't so damaged and crazy right now would be in New York and L.A. by now. Yeah. Um, just like I know the New York, the, the guys from New Orleans and New York were just tremendous. And like, there's only, there's only so much you can do comedy wise in New Orleans because it's not a comedy town. Right. It is a music town. Um, yeah. but there, it, there's tremendous opportunity. Obviously they love live music and live entertainment here. So meetings are appreciated and, um, yeah, it's good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've been there a couple of times, and I, I was never able to uh, track down the comedy shows, really. But, uh, the yeah, I, that was what I noticed there, is that it's like a ghost town during the day, but then every night, every place is packed. It's it's wild. Yeah. Yeah, there's, um, you know, there's like a really strong burlesque scene here. Mm -hmm. And, like, there's like five or six places that do, like, burlesque every night. And that's a lot of burlesque. <laughs> yeah. You know, like that's how, like, you know, how much creativity and artistic expression is in the city that, you know, like there needs to be like five burlesque options. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, this is, you know, it's a, I mean, that's the thing that I miss the most. You know, I haven't heard a live trumpet in, in months, you know, I mean, it's just like the energy here you know it's so it's so creative and like you know everyone is involved in the arts 
some way, even the culinary arts. I mean, the food scene here is amazing. And um, you're always talking to someone who does something. What do you yeah. are, trumpet player? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, man, oh, cool. Yeah. You know, uh, so it's, a good, it's a good to be a comedian down here because, um, you know, they know what it's like to be broke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everyone down here understands your brokenness. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's uh there's a dichotomy in New York. Um but yeah, that it, it really is I, you know, I'm maybe lucky that I haven't done a lot of um music performance since I got to Boston because I didn't lose much in that area when the pandemic hit. But like, you know, I teach music at this one place and like everyone I work with lost all their gigs and like uh lost all their side jobs and it's like really uh, yeah. pretty devastating no i did i did one online comedy show <laughs> during the pandemic um and actually had it it was enjoyable um it was a little nerve-wracking to have uh you know i'm i'm very i'm not i'm, I'm very i'm not a very good comedian in the sense that I have very, uh, my ability to think like I can write a joke and just say it without trying it out in a private setting while no one will laugh at my feeble attempt at humor is very, it, it's very unsettling for me. But this is the first time that I really just did an open mic set for, for the internet. Yeah. Um, and it's, it, it's a weird feeling. Um, it, it's weird performing to no one. Yeah. You know? Well, I've definitely done that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you can't see no one. <laughs> right. It's funny. I actually probably had more, I, I had more eyes on me on the Zoom than I ever had in probably every comedy show yeah, I've ever right. done total. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, but, and the money. Oh, man, people were Venmoing me like $5. I was like, really? Oh wow! I actually made money off this. Thing. <laughs> I have to do this every week. Yeah. Oh, that's definitely an improvement. Yeah, I feel like so much is lost in the, um, you know, in, in doing comedy over Zoom. But I mean, if you're making money, that's uh, better than a lot of us you know, did before. You know, I do like a lot of crowd work in my set. Not so much like a lot of crowd work, but I just do like you know, I like to. I like to talk to the crowd and use them as a jumping point to start another joke. And the, you know, it's more of a dialogue with the crowd. But this was impossible to do crowd work. Yeah. You know? So I started doing crowd work to to my Alexa. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> All right. Well, um, is there anything else about the bill or the um, death penalty well, stuff or I anything say, else yeah, you want to? Sure. Um, so. On the death penalty front, there's two more executions that are scheduled for August. So please, um, you know, visit NCADP's website and, and take a look at the information or go to the death penalty information center, dpic.org, and get the details. Um, write your senator, write your congressperson, and tell them that they need to stop the federal death penalty. There's a bill in the House of Representatives, that's two bills in the House of Representatives that will do just that. One is rep, one is um, sponsored by uh, uh, Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts, and the other one by Adriano Espinat in New York. 
they're both pretty much identical, but they both would ban the federal death penalty. Um, and it would be really great if people were starting lifting up those bills. Um, and with regards to save our stages, you know, it doesn't look like the Congress is going to step in and do anything this week. So we're going to have to go without $600 of unemployment and all the stuff that yep. they're starving us for. But we hope by next week this is going to be voted on. So, again, all your senators, uh, I forgot the bill numbers in the House and the Senate, but there's two, if you go to saveourstages.org, you can get all the information about the bill numbers. You can actually send a letter to uh, your representative from our website um, that's already written now. All you guys do is oh, put your name and address and zip code, and it will send automatically to your rep. Um, but in the next week, we're going to really be um, – um, up near the gun to try to get this included in stimulus. So if you're on social media, if you're listening to this and you're on Twitter, just, you know, hashtag save our stages. And, and, you know, all you have to do is bring whatever personal story you have, you know, you like live music and you want to see live music return, save our stages, hashtag. Simple as that. We don't need you to get into all the details about the money and how much money and the economic impact. If you want to hear someone play guitar again, and somebody sing, or yeah. you want to hear somebody rap again on stage, hashtag save our stage. Yeah, so that's all I've got. Uh, it's good to meet you, man. Thanks so much for doing this. Hey, man, thanks for the invite. I appreciate yeah. it. And um, good luck, man. Keep on trying to give little schmoes like me an opportunity <laughs> to, to speak our mind and, and all that. It's a really honor that you're giving us this platform. We appreciate it. Absolutely, I will. There's a great new policy out there. It's called single payer healthcare. And if you don't like it, then I hope you die. Cause I don't give a shit anymore. Give me healthcare or I'll cut off your head. I'm just kidding, but you should be dead. The streets will run red with the blood of Republicans. If I don't get to see a doctor, we can afford it. If you say that we can't, then go fuck yourself Cause I don't give a shit anymore Have you heard of single-payer healthcare? It's the only option, so there And if you don't fight for it, I hope you die Cause I don't give a shit anymore Abolish all insurance or die Don't you tell another damn lie The streets will run red with the blood of the Democrats If they don't ban co-pays We can afford it Cause I don't give a shit anymore, fuck.